1: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you, including driving a car with American license plates in British Columbia with the COVID-19 virus spreading south of the border, including in Washington State. There are lots of concerns out there about American visitors coming to Canada, possibly bringing the virus with them. Lots of reports out there about people who are driving cars with U.S. plates getting harassed criticized, targeted. Premier John Horgan was asked about this yesterday. Now have a close listen here to what Horgan said. He was asked yesterday what his advice was to people who are getting harassed for driving a vehicle with U.S. license plates. Here's Horgan.
0: With respect to those who uh, have uh, offshore
1: plates and are feeling uh, harassed, I I would suggest perhaps public transit. Uh, I would suggest that they get their plates changed. I would suggest they ride a bike. Uh, I can't uh, I can't tell people how to respond uh, when they see a, an, an offshore plate. What I can tell those individuals is there's a high degree of uh, certainty in British Columbia that we want to keep our borders closed until neighboring jurisdictions get a better handle on COVID-19. Okay, take public transit. Ride a bike. That was the premier's advice yesterday for people who are getting harassed if they have a vehicle with US license plates on it. Just remember something here, just because you got US license plates on a vehicle does not mean you're in the country illegally. There are lots of categories of people who got every right to be here in British Columbia, and they may have U.S. license plates on their car. Uh, so for the premier to say that the the answer to that, if you're getting harassed, is to park the car and, and get on a bike and take a bus, uh, That's get, we're going to talk about that on the show uh, right now. My guest is Len Saunders. He is an immigration lawyer across the border in Blaine, Washington, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Len. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What did you think when you heard uh, Premier John Horgan there say yesterday his advice to people being harassed here for their license plates is to get on a bike or take the bus? Your thoughts?
2: Well, I was surprised because this applies to me as a Canadian. I live in northern Washington State. Um, I'm an essential worker as an attorney. I haven't been up there for four months, even though I'm allowed to as an essential worker, but I've chosen not to even though the borders for people like me are not closed. But this is exactly why I have not driven into Canada with my U.S.-plated car, because I don't want to be painted with the same brush as if some, you know, they think I'm some American citizen that is just traveling up for vacation purposes, which is far from the truth. And not only does this apply to me, This applies to dozens, if not hundreds, of my Canadian clients who live in northern Washington state who either travel up every day as essential workers or go up and see family members and do the quarantine and are following all the rules.
1: Yeah, I think people might forget that there are exceptions for people to go across the border. And in some cases, they include essential workers like yourself. Or in some cases, actual frontline healthcare workers. There are there are nurses who live in Northern Washington State who will drive across the border to work in like a hospital in British Columbia. Absolutely, I mean, these are the people Absolutely. who have been pra- praised as the heroes in this pandemic, and that they might be driving a car potentially with uh, Washington State plates. What have you heard, Len, from from people that you know uh, who have driven in British Columbia with with U.S. plates? What kind of treatment have they received? They're being told to
2: go back to the U.S., and they're basically being socially shamed. And what these people are doing is they're hiding their cars in parkades. They're backing them in so that no one can see the license plates. Or they're just walking over and getting picked up because they do not want to drive around the lower mainland with a U.S.-plated car. And, you know, I'd be concerned about getting my car vandalized. And when the premier says, well, just change your license plate, I can't. I don't reside in Canada. I don't have a driver's license. I just can't change my plates over to Canadian. And the problem is it's a lengthy process. You have to import the car to Canada, which means if someone's already in Canada, they have to come back into the U.S. with their car for three days. It creates more of a problem for for Canadians who mostly are just up there for a brief moment of time, either working for the day or they've come back in order to avoid what's going on in the U.S. right now.
1: Yeah, do do you have concerns, uh, uh, Premier John Horgan's comments there, that if you don't want to be shamed, you don't want to be harassed, then maybe you should take the bus or ride a bike. Do you think that is what could potentially make it worse? I mean, is that an invitation for people to pile on even more?
2: Oh, absolutely, because I think you're way better off driving your car by yourself. You know, for me, let's say I was to walk over the border and take public transit all the way from South Surrey into Vancouver – think of all of the dozens or hundreds of people I'd be in contact with, it's well, yeah. almost counterproductive.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, if you did have uh, the, the virus, you'd probably be spreading it more on a bus than uh, It's counterproductive. Driving. Yeah, yeah, it really is. There, there are lots of other different um, ways that someone could be driving a vehicle with American plates in British Columbia. For example, I've, I've heard from people who've rented a car in bc and the the car they get has got a washington tag on it uh, because that's just common have you heard of that
2: i haven't heard that but if that was me i'd take the car back and say i don't want to drive it with u.s plates on it it's interesting because when when trudeau ordered everyone back from the u.s i think he gave everyone about 10 days to return back in march when the pandemic started a lot of people were caught off guard they were down here either vacationing or they were down here on work permits, at school. Yeah. A lot of those people had U.S.-plated cars, so they brought them back. And so the premiums put them in a very difficult position, saying to them, you know, well, I can't help you, but if you want to help yourself, you've got to change your license plates over. These are people who are intending on coming back to the U.S., so there's no requirement to license the vehicle up there if they're just back for a short period of time.
1: Okay, speaking to Len Saunders, he's an immigration lawyer. He's, he's Canadian, but he's based out of uh, Blaine, Washington. Have a listen to this, uh, Len. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry, the, the BC's provincial health officer, speaking yesterday, and she was asked about this issue too. She was asked about her reaction to the Premier's comments about riding a bike or taking the bus to avoid harassment. Here's what she said.
2: We need to treat everybody with kindness and with respect. We do not know everybody's story. And I think we need to pay attention to the fact that we all are in this together. Whether our license plate is from somewhere else, whether it's from Alberta, whether it's from California, or whether it's from here. We are here now and we all need to do the things to keep each other safe here now.
1: Okay, as Bonnie Henry yesterday, so a very different message and tone there compared to uh, Premier John Horgan's. So I don't know what's going on, if this is kind of a good cop, bad cop thing they've got going on here, but different kind of messaging, uh, it appears. Are there a lot of, American? your experience as an immigration lawyer there in, in Washington state, Len, with the virus uh, numbers and the transmission rate that we're seeing in Washington state, is there concern where you are? Are you, are you hearing from people who want to move to Canada, get out of Washington at all?
2: so much in Blaine, but you go further south into the big cities like Seattle or San Francisco and Los Angeles. And what I'm seeing, I, I'm a Canadian like you said, but I'm not a Canadian attorney, so I don't practice Canadian law. But I've never received so many phone calls from Americans wanting to go north, just not cold calling, but Americans who have relatives in Canada, whether it's a spouse, fiance, partner, parents, and they want to flee this country and go north after the federal election with Trump, a lot of your colleagues called me and said, "Well, you you must be hearing from a lot of Americans who want to leave the US and go to Canada." I got no phone calls. A few days ago, I think I got 6 calls in 1 day from wow. Americans wanting to get landed immigrant status in Canada or wanting to document themselves as derivative US citizens or Canadian citizens cuz One of their parents is a Canadian. Those are the calls I never used to receive. So it seems like there's a steady flow of Americans wanting to immigrate to Canada now.
1: Okay, these are Americans who want to immigrate and move to Canada legally, right? But we continue to hear stories of people who may be Americans who may be sneaking across the border. Maybe they're misrepresenting to a border official using the so called quote-unquote Alaska loophole to try and squeeze, sneak in a vacay or a getaway in Canada. Do you think that's actually going on? We continue to hear reports about it, but as an immigration lawyer right on the border, do you think that's actually happening? Are Americans trying to sneak into Canada?
2: You know, I only had one call from uh, someone who was interested in driving through up to Alaska, so that's one call in four months. What I am seeing is a lot of Americans who are marrying Canadians at the Peace Arch Park, and what's happening is, it's an immediate kind of, you know, get out of jail pass to go to Canada. All you have to do is marry a Canadian, go down to the courthouse in Bellingham in Whatcom County, register your marriage, and you can drive immediately south. So I see a lot of Americans who have been dating Canadians or engaged to Canadians for a number of years, and this whole border closure with the exemption for immediate family members is pushing them to do something that maybe they wouldn't have done for months or years to marry their partner in canada and they're it's almost like they're being welcomed in immediately
1: all right welcome back to the show this is mike smith my guest is len saunders he's an immigration lawyer in blaine washington and we're talking about premier john horgan's blunt advice to people driving vehicles with american license plates they're getting hassled and harassed he said take the bus ride a bike that was his answer yesterday 604-280-9898 is the number to call me what do you think about that 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell chuck in white rock hiya chuck hey how you doing mike i'm good go ahead
3: yeah i've been boating in the gulf islands the past few days in the southern gulf islands on the canada u.s border and noticing uh, a few american boats anchored in marine parks and when I went ashore to the small island that we were on, I ran into some friends from White Rock where I live, and they have a place on Saturna. and they said that several u S. citizens have been fined for coming in on their boats to Saturna Island, and I don't really know the ruling on that. Are they allowed to boat in our waters and not touch land, or are they supposedly on their way to Alaska?
1: There, there is, thank you for the call. If you give me a follow on Twitter today, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S. M. Y. T. H. I will post a link to a column I just wrote for Global News on this very topic, and okay. it's it's about Americans who uh, American boaters who are crossing the border in in like a pleasure craft in like a sailboat, and the rules are the same. Like you cannot you cannot come into the the the, the non essential travel rules are the same for maritime the maritime border as well. You cannot sail into Canada on a boat. Just on a vac- on a vacay, or just to get away on, on a pleasure on a pleasure cruise to Canada, is that your understanding, Len? It's the same rule, right? If you're on a boat,
2: yeah. So the land border closure applies to marine traffic. What's interesting right. is it doesn't apply to flying from Vancouver Airport, though, into the U.S.
1: Yeah, no, there's different rules at the airport. Um, but for on a boat, and by the way, there are lots of people out there who think that there's too many American boaters coming up here too. And we've got, like, COVID, a COVID volunteer COVID Coast Guard now looking out for American sailors coming into our waters. Check out my column on that. John On John in the open line in Delta. Hi, John.
0: Yeah, hi, Mike. Um, I just think uh, you're kind of painting this a little bit unfairly uh, towards putting a lot of the blame on Horgan for his comments. Um, in the 30 seconds or a minute right before the clip that you played off the top, he says to people along the lines of what Bonnie Henry said, where they should be a little bit more kind and understanding to what, uh, you know, the reasons that people should be here. So I think that you should play that clip and be a little bit more honest.
1: Yeah, he said, well, he said play, he said be honest, at the same time he's saying ride, take a take the bus or ride a bike if you don't want to get harassed. Exactly.
2: How, is that, how is that being well, kind? Listen, it doesn't matter how thin this pancake is, there's two sides to it. And you only... But how is that being
1: being kind, though? How is that being kind and understanding to say to someone, "If hang on, hang on, let's listen to... Remember what he said. He said, if you're getting harassed, if you're getting hassled, he said, take the bus. He said, ride a bike. That was his answer. And he knows darn well that there are people in British Columbia who may be Canadians themselves who may have a vehicle with U.S. license plates on it. How is that understanding? How is that being kind?
0: Play
1: his words. Okay, thank you, for, thank you for the call. Jeff in DeRoche.
0: Yeah, hi, Mike. Thanks. Hi. Um, I got married last year to a wonderful lady from Washington State. Uh, she's living with me here up, up here right now. Uh, we can't get her immigration papers through due to the COVID thing. It's all been slowed down, and until that happens, we can't get her, her license plate switched around on her car. And because of the ICBC situation now, the way they've restructured the rates, It's going to cost $1,000 now because she lives with me to drive my vehicle. Like, if she she moved into my neighbor's house, then uh, she'd be able to drive my vehicle for free. But it kind of defeats the point of getting married. Where do you you
1: live? Where do you live? Where is DeRoche? Where is it?
0: DeRoche is just about 15 minutes uh, east of Mission.
1: Okay, okay. Um, Do you have any advice for him, Len? Well, I think these
2: are the logistics that the premier didn't really understand, when he made his comments a lot of people are in a catch-22 just like this caller where they want to do the right thing but they can't because their hands are tied
1: yeah so i mean but if you're saying like if you are engaged to someone or you are married to someone they can legally come into the country do they, can they illegally come into canada right away as soon as you get married um
2: from what i'm seeing at the peace arch park absolutely now you have to remember i'm a u.s attorney not canadian But these people are going up immediately. But then they run into problems like the caller's spouse, where they can't probably get a driver's license or import their car until they get actual legal status, because a lot of them are just visitors up in Canada right now.
1: Squeeze in one more. I just got a minute. John in Maple Ridge. You got to go fast, though. Hi, John.
0: Hi. I think that Premier Oregon is just looking for popularity to a quick reaction where Bonnie Henry is, She's weighing everything and trying to make things work. And Barton uh, is doing a lot of things right, but he does these things that just drive me up the wall.
1: Yeah, he does. I think there is a little bit of a populist streak going on there that maybe he's trying to appeal to people who are uh, um, concerned about Americans possibly crossing into the border illegally. Uh, Len Saunders, thank you for being a guest on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. If you're like me, if you got kids in public school, you're keenly interested in the restart plan for schools in the fall. We're going to get more information from the government later this week on exactly how that is going to look like. Will we get schools reopened in the fall with 100% capacity in schools? That is the government's plan. That's the target. That's the goal. Are they going to get there, especially with COVID-19 uh, cases rising again. Think about all the other public infrastructure that's been closed down during this pandemic. Community rec centers, public libraries, all of those have been deeply impacted by this pandemic as well. What is the plan to get those up and running and back to normal? Again, I've got a great guest on that. Paul Farrow is the president of QPBC, that is the union that represents school support workers, education assistants, librarians, rec center employees, uh, right on the front lines of this. I'm very pleased to welcome him, Paul. Thank you for coming on.
3: Hey, Mike. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Let, let's talk about back to school, first of all. Can you tell me, which okay. your your union, which you guys represent the education assistants, right?
3: We Well, we actually uh, do more than that, Mike. We yeah. uh, represent uh, 30,000 members uh, in the K-12 to system, uh, going from education assistants, custodians, bus drivers, maintenance people, secretaries, and so on. Uh, let me just say this, the school system in, in British Columbia does not run without, without CUPE members. Our, our members are okay. the heart uh, of the public education system.
1: Yeah, for sure. Those are important people, for sure. I, I, I personally know in, in my family, we have uh, members of my family who are education assistants in, this, in the system, and I, I know mm-hmm. personally the great work that they do. L- let me ask you about the, uh, the plan for reopening schools. You, are, what are your thoughts on how this is going to work, and are, are you confident the schools will be re- reopened safely in the fall?
3: Uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to get there, Mike. Uh, I have to say uh, I've been uh, part of uh, not every discussion, but a lot of discussions with the ministry uh, on this, and I'm, I'm first off very pleased with the level of consultation with the stakeholders. You know, I, I think we're, we're all doing the same thing. We're all listening to Dr. Henry and Provincial Health, and Dr. Henry says uh, kids should be back in school, and she says kids can go back to school safely. And I think I think we can get there and, and she has uh, delivered on her words to date, and I have no reason to uh, think that there, we, we can't work, make it work.
1: Okay, you mentioned that you repre- your union represents custodial staff in school, and I guess they've never been more important before in keeping schools clean. We all remember the school janitor when we were going to school as kids, but I know there are some schools that don't even have a, a full-time janitor. Um, what are your <laughs> thoughts on on keeping schools clean here in the fall to fight uh, COVID?
3: I have made it crystal clear to the provincial government that they need to put more resources, more money into custodians. Uh, Over the years, there have been cuts to custodians going from daytime custodians to to the evenings. They need to, and we're working with those, having those conversations, they need to find ways of putting more daytime custodians to do that enhanced cleaning. But it's going to take money and the provincial government needs to find more money for custodial services right across uh, every school district in British Columbia.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was one of the key concerns when the government reopened schools on a a trial basis, I guess, effectively at the end of the last school year. And I remember talking to a lot of teachers and school officials saying they were worried about keeping schools clean. Who was was going to clean these classrooms? Who are going to clean all those surfaces? What was your experience at the end of the last school in terms of the ability for janitors and custodians to to keep the schools clean when kids started coming back?
3: Look, Mike, uh, this has been hard on everyone. Uh, It's been really hard on those, on those frontline workers. Uh, I'm so proud of them. Uh, They, they went overboard trying to, trying to do the work in their schools. But at the end of the day, uh, there needs to be properly funded an education system and properly funded uh, services like providing custodial work. And, and I, uh, we have been pushing very hard with the provincial government to find money for, for more workers. You can't, you can't go through COVID without enhanced cleaning and, out and, and more staff doing that
1: important work. Well, what was the reaction from the government when you asked them for more uh, money? uh you know
3: I Mr Fleming I, I have spoken with him directly I you know he he understands it uh I feel that he is working hard trying to uh talk to uh Minister uh Minister James uh, and and the uh, cabinet to find those resources uh, they realize the how important cleaning and enhanced cleaning is important in the public schools
1: Let's talk about some of the other public facilities that uh, your people work at um rec centers I'm a I'm a member of our local uh, municipal rec center uh, where I where I live, it's been shut down for many months. Um, what is the situation for, with rec centers around the province? Are they all shut down?
3: No, it's a it's a it's a mixed bag, uh, Mike, mm-hmm. and it's it's incredibly frustrating uh, what's happening. Doctor Henry has said uh, libraries can be open, community centers can be open. You you probably will see in 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 British Columbia that private private gyms are open, but public yeah. centers uh, are not opening up, uh, and and it's frustrating. As frustrating as all heck, uh, I'm looking right now. Here I am in Burnaby. Burnaby's doing a fairly good job on it, but in Vancouver, 26 community centers closed, nine ice rinks closed, seven libraries closed. Every, just about every community center in Surrey is closed. And and you'll, your listeners will find that in their communities, uh, that to be something will be closed. It, this is the time those public facilities need to be open. And and your listeners, yeah. if you have a closed library or community center in your neighborhood, you should be phoning the mayor and council and saying get that open and get it open safely and it can be done.
1: Okay, what happened to all the people who work there? Were they laid off? Yeah, Mike,
3: we've got uh, we represent uh, about 100,000 members uh, in British Columbia, we're the largest union. We have as as of today, we have about 18,000 members still on layoff. The majority of those are are in local government and in libraries. Uh, those are the, the two big sectors and we're trying to get them back to work. And uh, I think we can, but there needs to be a, needs to be a priority for the mayors, the mayors and, and councillors across B.C. I think that the provincial government has given them the tools to, to borrow off their capital reserves, you know, to delay paying their school tax and, and, and some additional flexibility to carry debt. And I, I'm concerned that local government are not, are not viewing these public centres uh, important enough. And uh, they should be open. And Dr. Henry says they can't.
1: Okay, speaking of Paul Farrow, he is the president of QPBC, the union that represents a, a lot of workers in community centers, libraries, uh, support workers in schools. Um, when you say they should be open, I, I know there are some people who are concerned about going back to, like, a gym, for example, or, or swimming in a, a community pool. Uh, they're worried about the spread of the virus. How can the, How can facilities like that, where people are at close quarters, if they're working out in a gym or they're swimming together in a pool, how can these facilities be reopened safely?
3: Well, they work with they work with uh, our local health and safety committees in those in those centers. They follow WorkSafe BC guidelines and they and they follow provincial health guidelines. I mean, the, the trick is the trick is using common sense and trying to limit the physical distancing. And you know, can you put regular uh, full capacity in a gym? No, but can you scale it down? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, I just uh, just was told this morning uh, eight rinks in Burnaby are open. It's a private center. Uh, what they've done is they've scaled down, the, da- scaled down the teams to, I believe, it's four on four. Why isn't that happening in, in public facilities across, across British Columbia? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's about priorities. Uh, this is the most important time for local governments. They need to be delivering those services, and, and, uh, and it's time that they actually open up those centers.
1: Okay, are these, is this exclusively jurisdiction of municipal governments? Like when you're talking about a local rec center, skating rink, swimming pool, library, yeah, uh, it typically yeah. c- comes down to municipal control, right?
3: Yeah, 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 it is. And and, this, and the same with libraries. The libraries is, a, is more tricky, Mike. Uh, uh, libraries, unfortunately, get the majority of their funding from local government, uh, and uh, they uh, seem to get to the, be the, the poor cousin in all this and get starved out by local government. Um, there is no reason why you can't go into a library and, and get a book. My goodness, you're going into a grocery store and getting your cornflakes and your other, other products, uh, you can do it. Uh, the other thing that I've got a concern with is I, I think that uh, local government are not understanding fully the, the provincial health uh, rule on the, the, the rule of 50 or, or under. You know, I'm pretty sure, Mike, you'll probably go into your local Canadian Tire and you'll find that there's more than 50 people in that, in that, uh, in that store. Um, there is a lot of misunderstanding uh, with, uh, with the provincial health rules. I think that the local government should be working with their local health authorities and trying to find a way to open up things safely. It can think, be done.
1: Is it like um, a patchwork from municipality to municipality and which facilities are open? Because I was talking to a buddy of mine in Vancouver who said he's, he's been able to get back to his local library branch, and he was very grateful to be able to go down and get a book at the local library when it reopened. But are some libraries shut and others are, are, are open? Yeah, the, the, the,
3: uh, the reason why facilities are not open across B.C., is not due to COVID, in my opinion. It is due to financial dollars and the will of those local mayors and councilors to open up those facilities, and they're not taking advantage of the tools that the provincial government uh, has used. Uh, uh, a and and uh, you know they need to find a way to, well, why to find they, the money.
1: Why are they are they saving money when the uh, facilities well, are shut down?
3: Well, time's going to time. Time will tell, uh, Mike. Uh, you know, I, I uh, we have no access to their books. I'm certainly our staff are going to be reviewing their financial situations. Uh, we also have to remember that the federal government just released announced 19 billion dollars for local government. Uh, that's going to be a 50 50 cost share with the provincial government. I think the provincial government should be putting restrictions when they give money to local government, that that money should be used to open up libraries and community centers, programs that the public are needing now. We've got the school system closed. It's the summer. Community centers should be open. Libraries should be open for for our kids, and they're not.
1: Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about the other epidemic out there, the other health crisis afflicting our province. I'm talking about the crisis of opioid addiction and fatal drug overdoses, which continue at a record rate in British Columbia. Let me introduce you now to an amazing man. His name is Guy Felicella. Guy is a public speaker. He is a harm reduction advocate. He is a man who has made an incredible journey from drug addiction and homelessness to become an advocate to help others I encourage you to check out his incredible TED Talks online, which you can find easily online, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Guy, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, uh, Guy, I've watched some of your TED Talks. I've uh, read about your story, and it's incredible, and I think it's proof that uh, recovery is possible. I know it, I know it's difficult for people who are addicted to drugs, but it is possible to come back, and you are you are living proof of that let's, let's talk a little bit about your journey, Guy. How did, how did you start doing, uh, doing drugs in the first place? And how did you become addicted and and homeless? Could you tell us that story?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it started off, uh, early on for me. I mean, uh, there was some, you know, verbal and, and physical abuse in my household that, um, really made it, um, extremely challenging in my life. And, you know, I developed, uh, low self-esteem, anxiety, depression, and and just a self-hatred for myself, like making a mistake in, in, in my life was just um, crippling. And so as, as a young age, I, you know, I uh, I excelled well in sports and really that was my, my outlet. Um, but as i gotten older, um, the pain was just completely unbearable. And so, um, you know, by the time I was 12 years old, I was, you know, running away from home and um, when I started running away from home, obviously, you know, you're, the people that you're hanging around with, um, you know, were um, doing drugs, and, and they were much older than me, but once, uh, you know, I'd thought of suicide many times in my life, and I really believed that if I didn't find drugs that, at an early age, that I would have ended my life, and um, when I found them, it was uh, to me, it was the, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in the world. I mean, it actually took away the pain and uh, it didn't really matter what uh, somebody said about me or if I was going to get hit and, and so, um, or verbally abused. It was actually, it was a way for me to cope with that. So
1: where, where did you grow uh,
0: up? Where, where I grew up in, in Richmond, uh, BC, oh. but um, by the, like I said, by the time I was honestly 13 years old. I was in and out of the downtown East side, um, you know, in 1983. So I'd, I'd been down there in and out, you know, I'd go in and, um, buy some stuff and then I'd leave and then eventually just found my way, um, trapped in there and obviously, you know, spent some time in juvenile detention. Sadly for me, jail was probably a safer place for me than, than being at home. And, um, you know, you kind of get into a pattern, uh, what you're familiar with just became what was normal.
1: Yeah, it's it's. I, I've talked to I've talked to people who have lived on the streets as well, and who have, have have gone along a similar path to you. And I remember a guy telling me once that he the, the best thing that happened to him was going to jail going to jail because it was uh it was that sort of was part of the uh, his ability his his path to turning things around. When you were uh, when you were on the downtown east side, guy um, doing drugs, and you were homeless at that time, right? You're living like living on the streets in the downtown east side. Yeah, for decades. Yes. Well, wow. wow. okay,
0: tell me about yeah. your exp-
1: tell me about your experience there because I know you've you overdosed many times, right?
0: Yeah, you know, honestly, uh, Mike, for 20 years of, uh, you know, over two decades of being entrenched in the downtown East Side with homelessness and, and 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 being addicted to drugs. I mean, I never overdosed once in 20 years, but in 2012 and 2013 when the drug market actually started to change and fentanyl became um you know introduced into the market um that's where I started repeatedly overdosing and um it, you know I'd overdose wake up i'd be in a hospital confused and 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 extremely like disorientated and um saddened and you know depressed and and it just continued to keep happening and happening and i I think too also one of the biggest impacts. In my addiction, the punishment of being homeless is, is extremely challenging on people. Uh, I mean, that just takes not only a toll out of you physically, but also mentally. And it, and it really did a number on my body as well. I mean, you're sleeping on hard concrete um, for years and years and years. It just really, you, you know, you develop arthritis. It's just it, your your health deteriorates. I mean, I had five osteomyelitis bone infections. And these are not just, you know, normal. These are life ending infections if they don't get treated and uh you know i had one in my back where i couldn't walk and um you know forward my left leg where they were going to amputate it and you know i i mean just literally addiction really threw absolutely everything possible that it could throw at me and um you know uh you know the last overdose being on the floor at the supervised consumption site and you know the nurse that brought me back you know she was saying that i was gone for like 10 minutes they were actually she was in tears i actually woke up from the overdose and and said why are you crying and she said because guy I, i just care about you and i actually broke down and started crying myself and um and, and, you know, she, I didn't want to go to the hospital. Obviously there's a lot of discrimination uh, towards drug users. When you go to the hospital, it was really challenging for me to go to emergency. Um, and she let me stay, you know, on the insight floor there with her. And she monitored me and then, you know, uh, managed to get me upstairs into the, to the detox program as well, which, you know, I, I'd, I'd always, you know, always trying. I was always, there was always just something in me that, that believed and um, that I could, that I could do it. I always had the desire to, to try, uh, even when I got knocked down by addiction, I, I just, I never stopped trying. And I, I think that perseverance paid off. I mean, um, one of the most amazing things is my grandmother, you know, came twice a year to see me in the downtown East side. And, um, you know, she always told me that I was going to get out and I was going to do big things one day. And, you know, uh, when I did get out, um, my wife, my, my grandmother had stage four pancreatic cancer and, um, she had about two weeks to live. And my, at that time, my wife, um, just got pregnant. And so we thought what a fitting way to, um, to let her know that she was going to be a great grandmother. And, and I told her, well, you only have two weeks to live after it. So she said, well, I can't wait to, to meet my great grandchild. And I said, well, grandpa, you have two weeks to live. And she grabbed my wrist and she says, no, I will, I will see my great grandson. And, um, I tell you, man, that, that that woman, that perseverance that she had, and, you know, we went there every week and showed her ultrasound pictures, and, and she survived nine months and then wow. saw her and wow. held her great-grandson. And, and then uh, <clears throat> uh, shortly after that, she passed, and, and I remember her telling me, she said, um, Guy, I, I've always loved you, and I've always cared about you, and I've always believed in you, and I, I had to stick around long enough just to make sure that you were okay, and, and now that wow. you're okay, I'm, I'm going to go. And such a... Wow. Super powerful, uh, what she provided with me was that hope and connection. And I was giving it back to her and yeah. So it was just an amazing, amazing thing where I said, just don't doubt human beings because people can change.
1: All right. Welcome back. Continuing my conversation now with my guest Guy Felicella. He is an harm reduction advocate. We're talking about his amazing journey from drug addiction and homelessness to become an advocate for other people who are trying to recover Guy, um, you, we talked before the break about your years on the downtown east side and the drug addiction that you experienced. And you mentioned that the the overdoses didn't start for you until uh, fentanyl started showing up on the street. And I know you had you had some near you had several like near death experiences, right? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, back then too, you know, there was there was overdoses, but. Not like what we see today. I mean, you know, it's 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 so heartbreaking. Um, you know, to to live through it. You know, to struggle. Um, you know, and nobody wants to end their lives. Um, you're just struggling with, you know, immense pain. And you know, usually people that are trapped in addiction are struggling with trauma. But yet, the system impacts more trauma on them, and you know, the stigma, and the discrimination makes it extremely challenging for people to reach out and get the help that they need. I mean, what I was battling inside was eternal inside and, and, and you know, externally, um, um, you know, was struggling with like anger and frustration of just how I was looked at. I was really looked at like a piece of garbage. And I think that, you know, the hardest part of my, my journey in substance use really wasn't the drugs, it was getting over the trauma that kept leading me back to the drugs. And and my worst days today are still far better than my, my best days in addiction. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's heartbreaking to really watch people struggle today, especially with the contaminated drug market, the way it is. And, uh, you know, back to back uh, record months for overdoses. Um, That's something that's unacceptable. The bottom line should always be, um, you know, saving people's lives and doing whatever we can. And for whatever reason, um, you know, with this contaminated drug market being so toxic the way it is, we need to remove people completely from it and, you know, hopefully, um, you know, implement some more safer supply right. strategies that actually help people.
1: Let's, let's talk a little bit about how how your life was saved. You mentioned that you I know you're a big believer in harm reduction and supervised injection sites. And how did you get into recovery? What was the turning point for you?
0: You, you know, I, I was either. This is how I looked at it in my life. I was either going to die in my addiction, or I was going to die trying to get out. And and for me, I just I I said, you know, I'd rather die trying. And so, um, you know, obviously for me, it meant to leave the downtown east side. And and in in the beginning, I I needed to go anywhere where just somebody wasn't using drugs, because for me to use drugs was just was going to end my life. And uh, I got involved in the beginning um, years of my recovery. I was involved in, you know, going to, you know, the usual AA meetings, NA meetings and, you know, just trying to trying to understand, like, you know, how to live, um, you know, differently and and try to put some new um, skills in my my vocabulary and. Um, you know, I, I went to an outpatient program and, and, and basically saw, you know, uh, a counselor and, and, and basically my life started to get, you know, a a little better. And, uh, I met some really good people along the way. Like, you know, I met my, my father-in-law is the first person I met in recovery. Actually, he's, he's in recovery as well. And, um, you know, he was the guy that saw me with one set of clothes on and a pair of sandals and said, you know, Hey, can I buy you? Some clothes, and he took me out shopping and bought me clothes. And I just said to him, "I said, well, I'll never be able to pay you back for that." And he says, "You know, one day you'll understand." And he wasn't my father-in-law at the time. <laughs> Later on, I married his daughter. So, no. wow,
1: wow. Um, is it? it I often, you often hear people say that uh, recovery is almost impossible for some people that they can't break their cycle of addiction. Uh, how how were you able to? to recover and get into recovery and walk away from drugs. Like, how long have you been clean now?
0: I, I've been uh, free from drugs for
1: uh, coming on uh, nine years now. So. Wow. Amazing. How yeah. come some people can do it and, and others can't? It's just a really complex
0: issue. It's really is like, you know, it took me honestly, it, it took Mike, I, I'm still getting over the trauma. You know, oh, yeah. I still see a counselor every two weeks. Um, and, and I tell you, it's really hard for people to get over some trauma that's been done, especially in their, in their lives. I think, I think one of the things that's really interesting and what I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of the behavior in my addiction was the stuff that I had to do to get the drugs that really kept me in my addiction. And I thought to myself, you know, If we could change that and and possibly, you know, have a withdrawal management thing where you actually gave people drugs to change the destructive behaviors that they're doing to get the drugs, you could actually change the the habitual patterns in a person's life. And then eventually, sky's the limit. I never went in this thing to actually uh, look at it to get off drugs for the rest of my life. I just said, that's too much for me. It's too much of an expectation. I'm just trying to get off drugs today. And that's just my approach. It's always been that way. I don't focus on what's right. going to happen tomorrow. I focus on what's going to happen today.
1: We've only got a couple of minutes left here. You mentioned the the record fatal overdoses that we're seeing in our in our province, which is tragic. What do you think needs to be done? You believe you believe that addicts need a safe supply of drugs so they don't die from the the poison drug supply on the street?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, people aren't going to make it to recovery or find their path or their journey if they're dead. People just don't recover when they're gone, and I think. Um, you know, also, too, if you look at just everything that the 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 drug culture, it's, you know, you've seen the police chiefs and, you know, the premier and, uh, you know, calling for decrim and have activists have been calling for it for, for a long time. And I think you know, that's the approach is that if this is truly a health issue, like we say it is, then we shouldn't be criminalizing people for struggling. And it's really rooted in trauma. A lot of people are, are, that are addicted have, have a, an issue of trauma. And so we really have to get to the root causes as well in order to actually help people. And like I said, when I left yeah. downtown inside, I was on um, an opiate agonist therapy for nine months. And it really gave me the confidence and, and ability to actually focus right. on other things instead of using drugs. Um, buying illicit drugs off the street and so I believe that approach can really get okay. somebody to uh, the
1: place that they need to be hey guy I got one minute here uh, y- you you've made this amazing journey this amazing recovery I just retweeted your uh, your tweet the other day with a, a beautiful photo of your your wife and your family can you tell me a little bit about that in the minute we got left
0: tell yeah yeah, my, my wife, who's just been a massive support in my life, she's really the rock and the glue of our family and, and really has really helped me and, you know, was taught me how to live again and taught me how to love again and broke down the, you know, the cold heart that I had inside and, you know, my kids and, uh, you know, I have three. How many kids you got? I have three, and we just had a newborn. I was born a a week ago. And and, and really, I'm reliving my childhood through my kids. And so uh, the childhood that I didn't get to experience that I wished I had, I'm living
1: it now. So I'm just having an amazing time. Guy, you are an inspiring man. I wish we had more time. We'll have to have you back on. And uh, I really encourage people to check out your website and all the great work you do. I encourage people to take a look at my Twitter, and you'll see uh, the the retweet there of uh, Guy's uh, tweet. Thank you very much for coming on today and continued success to you in your recovery.
0: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having okay. me. You-